it was because I don't know. All right, so we're on to the second part of the episode, which is the evacuation. And I'm going to talk about the Japanese internment camps. So before I start talking about what these were, what happened, I feel like a little personal anecdote is required. So back when I was a young wee bab, and I mean like when I was 16, because, you know, this is going to be embarrassing to admit, but I definitely watched a lot of trashy TV in my day. My favorite show was Teen Wolf. Partly, I blame this on Dylan O'Brien because he was real cute. But (laughs) Teen Wolf was, you know, my pride, my joy. I don't know why it was my pride. I guess I was just proud of Dylan O'Brien. But anyways, I loved it. And there was an episode in the third season, which is also when the show peaked, for any of you Teen Wolf fans. Um, And basically... There was an episode in the third, third season, and they did some, like, problematic Japanese appropriation. But there was an episode in the third season about that took place in, like, a flashback, and it took place in these camps in America. And, as I'm sure you can guess, there were Japanese internment camps. And in those... In that episode, there was a woman, and, you know, she was also, like, a werewolf kitsune, which definitely did not happen during the Japanese internment camps. But I remember watching this episode and thinking, what? Like, Teen Wolf's really gone too far you know like it's okay to make things up but it's not okay to like pretend like minorities were in prison in this country oh, young naive Kalyani. anyway so i looked it up and it turns out that it's true and to me that's really startling right like the fact that thousands of american citizens were imprisoned within this country And the way that I found out was not in my textbook, not from my teacher, not from my parents, but from Teen Wolf. Like, guys, that's how you know the education system has failed. That's how you know we failed to educate people about America's troubling history. Anyway, so a couple of clarifications. I personally don't like the term internment. I think it's a euphemism, and I think that rhetoric is really in powerful in the way that people talk about politics and the way that people talk about basically anything because the way you talk about something affects how people perceive it when you say internment it doesn't sound as bad as imprisonment or concentration camps which fun fact or not so fun fact by the way hitler and the nazis used the japanese internment camps as justification for their own concentration camps so you can sit with that unpleasant fact as I did. But I feel like there's something really problematic and troubling about the way that we still talk about it, right? Like, I'm doing it too. I'm calling it the Japanese internment camps because that's what the, the, all the literature says. Literature. Please, it's history.com. Um, but in the same way, because that's not what it was, right? Like, it was internment, yes, but it was more than that. It was thousands of Japanese people being ripped from their families and and be moved into racetracks and dusty places and having to leave school and sell your belongings and everything because the government said that you had to. And we're just going to write about that as internment? That masks all of that drama. In the same way, when Japanese Americans were asked to leave their homes, it was called evacuation. Like it was for their own safety rather than the paranoid racist delusions of our country. Maybe that was too harsh. But basically that's where I come down on those problems on that terminology but I will be using them unfortunately for this episode because 
I have to. So a little bit of background on what happened. So as many of you know, Pearl Harbor happened and in 1942, two months after Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt, good old FDR, um, as Commander-in-Chief issued Executive Order 9066, which basically had the effect of relocating all persons of Japanese ancestry, both citizens and aliens, inland outside of the Pacific military zone. A couple of quick notes about this. Um, This goes back to the whole executive power, right? Like, one man had the power and the authority to do this. And I remember shortly after Trump won the election, I was freaking out, right? Like, my family's Indian. We're brown. Um, I don't know if you know, but it's not a great time to be brown in this country. And I was really stressed out. I was like, I'm super worried about them starting to round up people. And everyone I talked to said, don't worry. Don't worry, Cleone, you're a citizen. They can't hurt you. Your parents are citizens. Listen, listen. America has not had a problem locking up its citizens in the past. It continues to do so as part of the carceral carceral state. It doesn't have any problem with that. So for those of you who feel like you're safe and you don't have to say anything and you can sit quietly while our government does this stuff, you're not safe. Nobody's safe. And the law is an objective. The law can be written and the law can be changed. Anyway, sorry. An aside. Um, So his order basically affected 117,000 people of Japanese descent, two-thirds of whom were native-born citizens of the U.S., like I said. So where did this come from, right? Like, okay, wait, maybe I'll get into that first. Let's continue with the logistics. So within weeks, all persons of Japanese ancestry, and a lot of this was on the West Coast because that's where um, a lot of people of Asian descent eventually ended up, and a lot of Japanese people lived there specifically. So within weeks, all persons of Japanese ancestry, whether citizens or enemy aliens, whether they were young or old or rich or poor, were ordered to assemble um, near assembly centers near their homes. Basically, that meant you got one suitcase. And, you know, forget if you spent your whole life building that perfect room with that perfect furniture because it was going away. And there's nothing you could do about it because that was the law. So... After you got to your assembly center, which, oh god, don't even get me started on, like, the horrible comparisons between internment. Like, of course I would never suggest that Japanese internment camps were as terrible as concentration camps in World War II. But there are definitely frightening parallels between the two, which they also had assembly centers. Um, And then they were sent to permanent relocation centers um, outside the restricted military zones. They lived in racetracks, in barns, in dusty, sort of horrible conditions. Like, imagine you have this, you know, house, this family, this community, and you're just ripped from it and sent to live in a racetrack. And there's not even any horses. Like, most people are scared of horses, but God, at least you want some entertainment. Anyway, so that was the reality of the internment like and you had to stay in those camps like you couldn't go anywhere and the only way you could go was if you joined the military so a lot of men did join the military because they still felt for their country right like that's something that really I struggle with is the fact that you know America spat on its Japanese citizens and still they loved this country so much that they were willing to die for it like if that doesn't make you feel bad So, and a lot of these Japanese Americans who died and then, you know, were memorialized in their towns, a lot of them, you know, sometimes the lists with the um, soldiers who had died would have Japanese Americans crossed out by people in the town. Like, there was a lot of hatred. And then eventually, um, 
when Japanese Americans tried to resume their former lives after they were let out of the camps, uh, many found that their properties had been seized for non-payment of taxes or otherwise appropriated. So not only were they robbed of all their stuffs, but they couldn't even come back to it. And people that they had entrusted their stuff to, like if you're leaving and your neighbor's white and you trust it with your neighbor, you going back, you can't get it back and there's no way to make them give it back to you. And like thinking of your neighbors betraying you like that, actually I shouldn't be surprised, this is America after all. Um, wow, this section is salty. I'm sorry, folks. It's just a really troubling part of American history. All right, so here's kind of the justification for internment. And I put justification in air quotes. Imagine them. Imagine me doing them. Because it's... There's really no way to justify imprisoning your citizens and doing this to them. But, of course, the government loves to justify things. So a little bit of like background on where this sort of hatred came from. So a lot of the anti-Japanese fears, particularly around, along the West Coast, came from economic factors and envy. So many of the first generation farmers had become really successful at raising fruits and vegetables in soil that a lot of people had considered infertile. So they were basically like, yeah, no one can farm here. And the Japanese were like, hmm, just wait. And they were doing great, which is wonderful and excellent, except everyone was suddenly like, oh, we didn't abandon that land. They took it from us. So, you know, your typical racism. Um, And then some of the other fears had to do with (laughs) military concerns because, you know, that's what people are concerned with in politics. So in 1905, there was, I think it was 1905, oh, my history's rusty, folks. The Russo-Japanese War, basically the Japanese won. And that was a shock, right, to the Western world, because for the longest time, they'd been treating a lot of Asian countries as inferior, and suddenly the Japanese came and kicked their butt, um, which, you know, let's talk about Imperial Japan another time. <laughs> but basically, because of that, this sort of across the Western world simulated this fear of the yellow peril, which was basically that, like, Asian people were coming to, like, take over your life, which, honestly, I kind of would want that to happen to me, because, boy, is my life a mess. Anyway, but, of course, Americans at the time did not take it that well. So, this led to, sort of, perceptions of otherness and, like, basically thinking about Japanese people and Asian people, but Japanese people specifically during this time of post-Pearl Harbor, as not citizens, but as something different. So the official objective of this order was that they were trying to prevent espionage and to protect, pre- prevent like people of Japanese descent spying on the United States for Japan, um, because Japan was on the side of, I'm not saying this is justified, I'm saying this is the logic, because Japan was on the side of Germany. And that was basic and the other logic which truly quite is very laughable is that they were trying to protect persons of Japanese descent from harm at the hands of Americans which one internee pointed out and I love this quote if we were there for our own protection why were the guns at the guard towers pointed inward instead of outward so you can sit on that for a second and there was a naval intelligence officer a month before the order was um, issued who basically said that a lot of Japanese Americans were being perceived as a threat almost entirely because of the physical characteristics of the people. 
So, like I said before, this had a lot to do, like, this was just blatant racism. And people weren't shy about it either. It's just, I guess, no one cared. And also, FDR was a little racist. Um, so then, he also mentioned that fewer than 3% of the Japanese Americans might be inclined towards sabotage or spying. So the FBI and the Navy already knew who these people were. They knew who these 3% were, and they still decided to forcefully evacuate and imprison thousands of Japanese Americans. And... John DeWitt, the army general in command of the coast, said, actually, I'm not going to read that because that's a slur. Um, Basically, he said that there's a fifth column, which this was kind of perpetuated also in newspapers, right? They would draw, even Dr. Seuss did a drawing of like Japanese Americans lining up to, or like Japanese people with their features exaggerated to like bomb the United States. So there was this idea of a fifth column that there was like a secret community of Japanese insurgents growing in the United States, which just factually was incorrect. Um, And another thing to note is that this really super was racist because there was no wholesale incarceration of U.S. residents who traced their ancestry to either Japan, sorry, Germany or Italy, which were America's other other enemies. So there was, if this really was about enemy populations within the country, which first of all is incredibly flawed logic, but secondly, if it was about that, then German citizens or people of German descent and Italian descent would have been. imprisoned but of course they could not do that and even though the justification of the evacuation was to thwart espionage newborn babies young children the elderly the infirm and children from orphanages and even children adopted by caucasian parents like little babies were imprisoned so can you imagine like looking at an old person and thinking yeah that guy's gonna knife me in the back anyway so another not so fun fact was that the Justice Department organized the arrests right after Pearl Harbor of 3,000 people who were considered quote unquote dangerous enemy aliens, half of whom were Japanese. And of the Japanese who were arrested, a lot of them were community leaders, and there didn't actually have to be any evidence of subversive activity. So you could basically arrest someone with zero evidence because they were Japanese and because they were quote unquote dangerous enemy alien. And the arresting of community leaders was one thing, and then anyone who was arrested had their bank accounts frozen. So the Japanese-American community suddenly lost its community leaders and its financial assets. So this wasn't just imprisoning Japanese-Americans. It was crippling their communities. It was cutting them off at the knees because of a racist fear. Um, So that's kind of the background of the issue. But one person I want to talk about specifically is Fred Korematsu. So I'm sure a lot of you who have taken um, U.S. politics or the constitution, you know, I don't know enough about the political science courses in this department, so help me God. But anyway, Fred Korematsu is part of this big Supreme Court, um, which is, you know, the U.S. v. Korematsu. So he was the son of Japanese immigrants, and he was 23 years old at the time of the um, rounding up of Japanese Americans. And his parents, you know, round, you know, left their home and reported to a racetrack and did everything they were supposed to. Korematsu, however, decided he was having none of it. So he actually stayed behind with his girlfriend, who was Italian-American, and then he fled. He even went so far as to have plastic surgery on his eyes to avoid recognition. And then, of course, you know, this guy, he was really committed to the bit, okay? Like, he, he was... I guess it wasn't a bit. I guess it was the bit was survival. But he was really committed to it regardless. So he basically, you know, 
did what he had to. But of course, in the summer of 1942, uh, May 4th, 1942, he was arrested and branded as a spy in the newspapers. And then he was found guilty in federal court of ignoring the exclusion directive and was sentenced to five years probation. So then he and his lawyer sued the government and the the court case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And now, unfortunately, he lost in a six to three decision, which basically meant six to three, the United States Supreme Court ruled that it was legal to imprison and intern your own citizens. Um, Of course, we all know that that's been the case in America throughout history, but like to have a court say it was really something else. And on top of that, Fred Korematsu really kind of was rejected by his community and other Japanese Americans during and after the camps because a lot of Japanese Americans felt like going to the internment following the rules was going to prove their loyalty to the United States. And I think you still see a lot of this, right, like in immigrant culture. Like, there's a lot of, like, keep your head down, just do what you, like, do what you have to, follow the rules, and everyone will, you know, get along with you. And I think that's part of what, like, plays into this idea of Asians as the model minority. Like, we're told, and we kind of really believe in the Asian dream that if we, we keep our head down and we obey the rules and we don't say anything against the government, which, lol, um, except me, if we don't do any of that, that we're going to make it and that we're going to be fine. Fred Korematsu didn't do that. He didn't follow his community. And because of that, he was rejected and ignored and, you know, really put out of his community while in the camps and after. So the thing is, this is a horrific incident in United States history of action against its own citizens. Like, it's horrible and disgusting. And it's terrible that I had to find out about it from Teen Wolf and that you had to find out about it from, well, I don't know, maybe you knew about it before. But some of you might be listening to this and have never heard about this before. But that you had to find out about it from me, a 20-year, one-year-old who knows how to use history.com and loved Teen Wolf. But the thing is, this didn't just stay in the past, right? Like, this still carries through today. So, in 2018, think about this, he lost in 1942 and received an official apology in the 1980s. But in 2018, Korematsu versus U.S. was finally overturned. So if you think about that, for like 70 years, it was still legal to intern your own citizen that precedent existed and like I talked about earlier the law is an objective right like if the law exists if someone has created that law that can be used to justify all sorts of things and the fact that this law existed for so long is terrible but here's the other part of it while it's great that Korematsu versus United States was overturned and that you know now yes it is illegal to intern your own citizens the reason that the Supreme Court overturned it was to justify um like, they, they put it as part of the Muslim ban. So the Supreme Court over the summer basically ruled that Trump's Muslim ban was legal and was not unconstitutional. And then at the same time, they overturned Korematsu. So they were trying to do it as a way to deflect attention, right? Like, that was a version of racism that was really bad and illegal. But this Muslim ban is definitely not illegal and definitely not unconstitutional and definitely not racist. So in trying to put down one form of racism, they were trying to distinguish between the two and say, oh, well, this Muslim ban isn't really racist because this was what racism was like. So they used it as a sort of way to discriminate further against um, Muslim Muslim countries and Muslim people. So this legacy still very much exists today. And then 
we still have detention centers in this country. Not only that, like I was reading something about how people think that the Japanese internment camps were actually better than the internment camps that we have because teenagers and children are being separated from their families. The internment camps, you know, I'm not saying that they were great because they obviously were not. But the internment camps had education systems, there were high schools. These children are being detained without any structure or and just incredible trauma and without first of all they shouldn't be detained but in these sort of conditions and this is 2019 right like this is the world we still live in um and there's a facility called Tornillo which is home to perhaps dozens of teenage boys and very little is known about it so no reporters have been allowed inside it's, it could hold hundreds of minors possibly for months at a time So this legacy still exists in the United States, right? And not only that, the U.S. goes to extreme lengths to keep any sort of record of it out. Like any sort of, like, we don't learn about this in textbooks. We don't get to see a lot of this stuff that's happening to children because reporters are being kept out, just like reporters were being kept out of the internment camps. The United States really is unfortunately in the habit of doing terrible things to minorities and not owning up to it which maybe is a lot of countries but it's just particularly disheartening as someone who used to have a lot of faith when I was younger in this democracy and the fact you know the American dream like I talked about put your head down work hard pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you're gonna get what you're gonna get where you need to be that's just not true because a lot of the laws and the institutions in this country are structured so that someone in power can use a person of color or can use a minority as a scapegoat for problems in this country. And I think you see that now, and I think, unfortunately, we're going to continue seeing it again. So thanks so much for listening to my show. Um, This was my first episode. I hope it went well. I hope you learned something. Please let me know if you listened. Um, Please text me. And also follow my Instagram account. Um, This is a lot of promo. Anyway, so I'm just going to switch over the music for the last bit. But thank you so much for listening. Um, I'll be back next week. Not at this time. I'll be back Monday at 9 a.m. So um, thanks so much. And if you didn't get a chance to listen, but you wouldn't be hearing that anyway. Um, Thanks so much.